There is a classic story about the power of prayer, and it goes like this. Once there was a town in the Midwest that had two churches and one whiskey distillery. The members of both churches claimed that the distillery gave the community a very bad image. To make matters worse, the owner of the distillery was an outspoken atheist. The church people had tried unsuccessfully for years to shut down the distillery. They decided to hold a joint prayer meeting on Saturday night to ask God to intervene and settle the matter once and for all. The people met on Saturday night, and all through the prayer meeting, a terrible electrical storm raged. Then, to the delight of the church folks, a lightning bolt hit the distillery and burned it to the ground. The next morning, the sermon in both churches was on the power of prayer. Insurance adjusters promptly advised the distillery that they would not pay for the damages because this fire was an act of God, and that was an exclusion in the insurance policy. The distillery owner was furious and decided to sue both churches, claiming they conspired with God to destroy his building and his business. The churches then denied that they had anything to do with the cause of the fire. The judge who presided over the case opened the trial with these words. I find one thing in this case very perplexing. We have a situation where the plaintiff, an atheist, is professing his belief in the power of prayer. And the defendants, made up of faithful church members, are denying the very same power. Do you believe in the power of prayer? Would you like to learn how to pray with more power in your life? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at some Bible verses in just a moment that are from the book of James. But let me begin with this first verse. It's there on your outline. It says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great, what's the next word? Great power and produces wonderful results. Now, can somebody tell me who wrote that verse of the Bible? There is a big clue right there. Who is it? It is James, exactly. Now, James was a very influential leader in the early church. He was also the half-brother of Jesus and a man who was radically committed to prayer. In fact, he had a nickname. They called him Old Camel Knees. You know why? Because he prayed so much. His knees were all gnarly and wrinkled because he prayed all the time. So we're going to look at some things that James can teach us this morning about how to pray with power. And there are two questions that I want to answer. Here's the first. When should you pray? When should you pray? Now, the answer is pretty obvious, right? I mean, you can pray anytime. You should pray all the time. The Bible says pray without ceasing. But there are specific times in your life and mine when we really need to pray. And James is going to point some of those times out. Here's the first. When you are in trouble. When you're in trouble. Look at this question that James asks. Is any of you in trouble? Well, you should complain. You should look for somebody to blame it on. You should just give up because it's just going to get worse. What does he say? You should, tell me church, you should pray. You should pray. Now, when do people typically pray the most? When there's calm in their life or when there's a crisis yeah when there's a crisis we all know that it could be a a relational crisis a financial crisis an emotional crisis and why is that the case because when there's a crisis we realize hey i need a power greater than myself to deal with this trouble a man named john trapp once said if a man cannot pray let him go to sea and there he will learn remember the story of jonah 
Jonah's at sea, gets pitched overboard by some angry sailors, and what happens to him next? He gets swallowed by a giant fish. Now, when he gets swallowed by the giant fish, does he say, hey, this is great. I wonder if I could open a sushi bar. He cries out to God, God, get me out of here. I'm in trouble. God, please do something. Please deliver me. That's the kind of prayers that we can pray when trouble pours into our lives too. Now, here's another occasion to prayer when you are happy, when you are happy. And again, this is what James says, is anyone happy? You should sing songs of praise. Now, when you're really, really happy, what's a natural response? What do you do when you're really, really happy? It's the last word in the first line there in the verse. Thank you. Sing. Good. So what have we been doing this morning? We have been singing. And singing is a natural way to express our hearts to God. You can sing your prayers. We've been doing this in our 40 days of prayer um, small group. Um, At the end of our, our study time, we just sing songs. And it's a way to express our prayer, our praise, our worship to God. And church, you've heard me say this many times. When we sing in the morning, on Sunday morning, we're not just singing about God, we're singing to God. And this is something that God's people have been doing for millennia. The songs in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, are prayers expressing people's hearts to God. Now, this is rather intriguing. Notice that trouble and happiness are mentioned together in in those brief verses. If you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing songs. Why is that? Well, because that's how life is, isn't it? One minute you're crying, the next minute you're singing. Some days it feels like you're on this emotional roller coaster. You know, you wake up and things are going great, and an hour later, the bottom falls out. And James says, listen, whether you're in trouble, whether you're happy, whether you're anywhere in between, you should, you should pray. You should pray and cry out to God. Now, here's another time that we can pray when you and others are sick. How many of you know somebody who's been sick in the last couple of weeks? How many of you have been sick in the last couple of weeks? There is an epidemic of flu. There are a lot of people who are sick. Now, look at verse 14. It says this. Is any among you sick? Now, the word sick here means without strength. This is somebody who's just wiped out. They're so weak they can't even get out of bed. James says, well, here's what you should do. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And we've done this here in our church. There have been times when people have been really sick and they've called the elders and we have anointed them with oil and prayed over them. And, and certainly, this is something that was done in the first century. There was a medicinal value in the oil that was applied to people. Remember the story of the, the Good Samaritan? This guy gets beat up by robbers and he takes oil and, and bandages this guy's wounds. But notice this. The emphasis is not on the power of the oil. The emphasis is on the power of what? Prayer. Because James goes on and he says this in verse 15, and the prayer, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And then he goes on, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's a lot of teaching in the Christian community these days about healing. And I think there's a lot of confusion as well because I've heard this teaching, you probably heard it as well. If you just have enough faith, God will always heal you. Church, is that true? The Bible doesn't confirm that. Our personal experience 
does not confirm that. In fact, think about the Apostle Paul. He was a man of great faith, and he prayed three times for God to heal him, to take away what he called a thorn in the flesh, and God said, no. No, Paul, I'm not going to take it away, but I will give you my grace, and my grace is sufficient for you. My grace will enable you to deal with this physical problem that you have. Now, here in the book of James, it's kind of a special case. This is a person who is sick because they're living in rebellion against God, and God has allowed this illness to come into their life to get the person's attention. And what needs to happen, this person needs to say, you know what, God, I'm sorry, I confess. And God says, when the person does that, they're going to be raised up. They're going to be healed. And that certainly can happen in our lives as well. But here's a question that I want to ask. When you're sick, when somebody you care about is sick, how do you pray for them? How do you pray for them? Every Sunday, so many of you fill out a prayer request, and we take those seriously. Every Sunday, I pray through all of the prayer requests, and so many of them have to do with physical healing. All kinds of problems. Somebody's having surgery. Somebody's you know, dealing with this issue or, or that. And let me tell you how I pray for you. When I pray, I say, God, I really want you to heal this person. I pray that you will heal them completely. And here's why. Because the scripture says that we should bring our desires to God. We're supposed to pray and say, God, here's what I want, God. Here's what I want for this person because I care about them. But when I pray, I also say this. However, God, you're in charge. You're in charge of my life. You're in charge of their life. God, I pray that your will is done. And I pray that you will use this illness, this adversity, to draw this person closer to you, God to accomplish your purpose in their life. Because here's the reality. Sometimes it is God's will to heal us. And he does that in a number of ways. You know, sometimes our body just heals itself. There's an amazing ability that God designed into our bodies to do that. Sometimes the healing comes through the expertise and skill of people in the medical community. Other times God just decides to heal us miraculously. And church, I've experienced all three of those healings in the last couple of months. I know that God can heal in the way that he chooses. But here's the reality. Sometimes God does this. Sometimes God takes people home to heal them. And we've talked about this before. Because here's the reality. There are times when God, for his own purposes, for his own reasons, hears us pray, God, please, I want to get better. I want to be healed. And God says, no, not yet. And God has a purpose. And I'm convinced of this, church, that the scripture says that everything God allows into our lives is for our good and for his glory. I, I firmly believe that. But I also believe that so often the suffering, the pain, the illness is not just to benefit us. It's to benefit others. It's the people who are closest to us and watch us go through that adversity who have a front row seat to see our faith in God and our trust of Jesus Christ. And that's so important to remember. Well, let me point out one, one other time that we ought to pray is this, when others have wandered away from God, when others have wandered away from God, this is from verse 19. James says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I read a really moving story about this teenage girl who was dying. She only had a few months to live and she went to her pastor and said, I just want to do something significant with my life. What, what should I do? And he said, here's what I would suggest. Make a list of people 
who you want to come to know Jesus and you start praying for them every single day. And so she started to do that. And one by one, the people on that list started giving their lives to Christ. She was so excited, she started praying even harder day after day for all the people on her list. Well, after a few months, this young girl finally succumbed to her illness. And after she died, her parents found a piece of paper under her pillow. It was her prayer list. There were 56 names on it. And every single one of these people had trusted Jesus, the last one, the night before she died. Church, Jesus taught us that we should always pray and never give up. And I think that's especially important when we're praying for people who have wandered away from God and away from his purpose for their lives. Some of you moms and dads this morning are parents of a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. And I want to encourage you, keep praying that they will come home to God, that they will open their eyes and see how much Jesus loves them and get back on the path that God has for their life. Let me say this too. I, I really relate to that story in the Bible about the prodigal son because that story is about me. There was a time in my life when I decided I was going to run from God. And I actually had a, a friend and I said to him, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud and I want you to be a witness to it. And he thought it was kind of weird. I said, no, listen, I'm serious. Just pray with your eyes open because I have something I want to say to God. And I prayed and I said, God, here's the deal. I've heard my whole life that you're real. I've heard that you love me, but it doesn't feel like that. So here's the deal, God. I'm going to run as far and as fast as I can away from you. And if you're real, you prove it. You come get me, God. Amen. Short time thereafter, through some rather dramatic events, guess what happened? God reached out and he grabbed me and he brought me back home. And I'll tell you this, I know that's because of the sovereign grace of God, but I also believe that it's because of the faithful prayers of people who refuse to give up on me because they love me. Moms, dads, keep praying for those prodigal sons and daughters. And when you pray, ask God to bring somebody into their life that will help them get back on the right path. Pray that God will bring circumstances into their lives that will bring them to their knees so the only place they can look is up and see the face of Jesus. Because our prayers have power. Let me say this too, church. If you're a Christian this morning, do you have a list? Do you have a prayer list? Do you have people that you're praying will come to know Jesus? People at work, people in your neighborhood, people at school. There's a, an acronym, PUSH, P-U-S-H. You know what it stands for? Pray until something happens. That's what we need to do. We need a prayer list. We need to pray until something happens in the hearts of people that we want to follow Jesus. And here's the deal. Look around you right now. Are there any empty seats here? Yeah. We can pray that God will fill these seats up with people who need to know about the love that Jesus has for them. And we need to do more than just pray. We need to what? We need to invite people to come. Did you know? And I just saw a video about this the other day. The percentage of people who have asked to attend a church service would say yes. 82%. Can you imagine what would happen if we were serious, intentional about inviting people, praying for people? Listen, our membership covenant, and many of you are familiar with this, it says this. I will share the responsibility for my church by doing three things. By praying for its growth, 
by inviting the unchurched to attend and by warmly welcoming those who visit. Church, I want to encourage all of us to do that. Pray, invite, and welcome. And let's see what God will do. Well, so far we've looked at when to pray. Now let's consider this question. How can you pray with power? And here's where it begins. Make sure you have a right relationship with God. Make sure you have a right relationship with God. And look at the end of verse 16. It says this, the prayer of what kind of person? A righteous person is what? Powerful and effective. So it begs the question, well, what is a righteous person? Well, simply this, a person who has a right relationship with God. How do you have a right relationship with God? By understanding, believing, embracing the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, I tried something first service, and I thought I'd try it with you as well. You know, here at our church, we're a gospel-centered church. We talk about the bad news and the good news. And I firmly believe that you can't possibly understand how good the good news is unless you understand how bad the bad news is. So I want to do this. I want to divide the church right now. This, these two sections here, everybody, up against the wall, you're the bad news people. All right? And then everybody here to my right, you're the good news people. And I want to do that because I think the good news kind of outweighs the bad news. So there's more of us over here. And I want to do this. I want to kind of be the gospel coach because here's the deal, church. I want you to be able to express the bad news and the good news to people in your life. And I also want you to be able to preach the gospel to yourself. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But let's talk about the bad news for a, a minute, all right? The bad news is that we're born into this world with a heart that pulls us away from God's purpose and plan for our lives. God says, Love me with all of your heart. We don't. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. We don't. And there's a word in the Bible for this that has three letters and has a big I in the middle. And the word is? Good. Some of you are over here. Good news, people. Okay, that's okay. You can participate if you really want to. All right, so it's sin. And our sin separates us from God because God's holy and we're not. And the Bible also says that the consequence of our sin is this. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our sin is to die and to be separated from God forever. And that's some really bad news. There's no doubt about it. And it even is worse because we can't do anything to rescue ourselves. But there is what? Good news. And the good news is there is a God who loves you like nobody else. Now, good news, people, we know there's one God. But this one God exists in how many persons? Okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we know the story of the gospel is that God the Father sends God the Son to earth in the person of Jesus. And what kind of life does Jesus live? Starts with a P. Perfect life, the life we could never live. And then he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and hung on a cross. And on the cross, God the Father is willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. Jesus dies the death that we deserve. Now, we've got these two big problems. Bad news people, what's our first big problem? Starts with an S. And what's the second problem? Okay, you got giant problems, sin and death. God has a solution. So what is God's solution for sin, good news people? Starts with the letter F. Forgiveness, exactly. Made possible by whom? By Jesus. By his sacrificial death, it is now possible for us to be forgiven. Now, we said the two problems are what again? Sin and death. What's God's answer for death? What's the opposite of death? Life. And what happens to Jesus after he's been dead for three days? He comes back to life and he offers us a new what? A new life. And here's how you accept that life. A, B, C. Admit you're a sinner and you need God's forgiveness. B, believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And C, choose to follow him. 
That is the bad news and the good news. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Last week, I talked about what kind of glasses? Gospel glasses, exactly. And I encourage you to look at yourself, to look at your life through gospel glasses because it makes all the difference in the world. Because when you look in the mirror and you put on your gospel glasses, you realize, you know what? I have a new record, I have a new identity, and I have a new potential. When you put on your gospel glasses and look in the mirror, you can say, you know what? My past is settled and my future is assured and God will give me whatever I need for today because he promised to do it. When you have gospel glasses, you understand that because of Jesus and what he's done, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to hide. And I have nothing to fear. Can you imagine what it would be like to actually live that way? Because that's what God wants for us, to live our lives with gospel glasses. And here's something else. When you put on your gospel glasses, you realize that it is now possible to pray with power. Because you're not coming in your own name. You're coming in the name of Jesus, the one who gave his life for you and invited you to pray in his name. Now, it's really important, if you want to pray with power, to have a right relationship with God. And here's something else that's important. Maintain a close relationship with God. Maintain a close relationship with God. When we make choices that displease God, it affects our relationship with God. Now, I want to be really clear. I don't want you to misunderstand me. When you're a Christian and you do something that displeases God, you don't lose your relationship with him. You are forever secure in the family of God. Once you're his son or his daughter, he will never let you go. Are we clear on that? That is really important. That being said, if you make choices that displease God, it will affect your relationship. There's no doubt. Uh, let's say, David, can I use you as an example? All right. David and I are friends. And let's say that I just lie to you. I mean, I just completely lie, and you find out about it. Does that affect our relationship? Well, absolutely. Now, what should I do at that point? Just find another friend? Well, that didn't work out too well. Let me see if I can find another friend. What should I do? Church, you should know this. What should I do? Yeah, I should go to David and I should what? Starts with a big C. Confess and say, hey man, I am so sorry that I lied to you. I did not tell you the truth. Would you please forgive me? And if there is forgiveness that is offered and received, what happens now? Our relationship can be restored. Now look at this verse. This is from Psalm 66. Because it works the same way in our relationship with God. The psalmist says, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have what? Listened. It affects your prayer life. And here's something else that affects our closeness to God, the way that we treat other people. And this is especially true in marriage. Check out this verse. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat her as you should. Notice this. So that your prayers will not be what? Hindered. Guys, you should underline that verse in your Bible before your wife does. <laughs> Seriously. This is so important. We can't possibly mistreat other people, especially those closest to us, and expect God to hear our prayers. Whenever we displease God, we have to come to God and confess and ask for his forgiveness, and that restores our closeness to God. Now, here's something else that's necessary in order to pray with power. Believe that God has the power to fulfill his promises to you. We have to believe that God has the power to fulfill his promises to us. In James 1, he talks about asking God for wisdom. How many of you need wisdom right now? 
Man, we all do. And that's the assumption in this verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, because we all do, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And what's the promise? It's right there. And it will what? Be given to you. But, James goes on, there's a certain way you have to ask. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. And here's the reasoning. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think that they will receive anything from the Lord. That's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? And then he says, they are double-minded and unstable in all they do. This, this passage reminds me of that story in the Bible where the disciples are in a boat, they're in the middle of the lake, it's dark, and they see the shadowy figure approaching. They think it's a ghost, and Jesus knows they're terrified, and he says, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter Impetuous Peter says, well, Lord, if it's really you, then tell me to come to you on the water. And what does Jesus say? Well, come on, Peter. And many of you know the story. What does he do? He gets out of the boat because he believes that he can walk on water to Jesus. And I guess for a couple of steps, it's working out pretty well for Peter. And he must have been just amazed at what was, t was taking place. But then he starts to look at the wind and the waves and what happens? He starts to sink. And what does Jesus do? Good try, Peter. Down to 11 disciples now. What does Jesus do? Yeah, he reaches down and he says, Peter, Peter, where's your faith? Why did you doubt? Because you see, when Peter wasn't doubting, he was doing something with and in the power of God that wasn't otherwise possible. Now think about this. When we pray, sometimes we have all this faith, right? God, give me wisdom. God, give me strength. God, show me what to do. And you say amen, and you think, man, God's going God's to come through. God's got this. Let's go. And it's like getting out of the boat. You take a few steps, and all of a sudden, circumstances hit you right upside the head, and you start going, whoa, man, I'm not so sure about this. I don't know if God can do this. I don't know if God's going to come through. And so you start to doubt. You start to waver. Just like that wave of the sea. And God, I can just hear God sometimes saying, Dudley, Where's your faith? Why do you doubt that I'm going to keep my promises to you? Church, that's what God wants from us. He wants us to believe him, to believe that he will do exactly what he's promised to do in our lives. There's a person mentioned in the book of James who was a man of faith and a man of prayer. His name's Elijah. And it says this, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Now, James says that because he doesn't want us to think that Elijah was some kind of, you know, spiritual superhero. Just a guy. A human being like us. And he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't for three and a half years. And then verse 18, again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. You know, in, Bible, in the Bible, there's a, a strong connection between belief and prayer. Listen to this quote from a woman. Her name is Nancy Spiegelberg. Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. Isn't that beautiful? You know, sometimes we pray and we go, God, you know, I really need you to do something here. Okay, would you just fill my cup? And what she's saying is, you know what? If you knew God better, you wouldn't need a cup. What would you need? You need a bucket. Because we have a big God who has a lot of power. 
the power to answer big prayers. So church, if we want to pray with power, we have to believe that God is able to keep his promises. And here's the final thing that we need to do to have a powerful prayer life. Surrender to God's will for your life. Surrender to God's will for your life. This is what we read in James chapter 4. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Another word for submit is surrender. If you want to see a powerful prayer life, you have to surrender your will to the will of God. But honestly, that word is not a very popular word in our culture. It has some really negative connotations. When an army loses, it surrenders. When a criminal is caught, they surrender to the police. To surrender is to give up. To surrender is to lose. And nobody wants to be a what? I don't want to be a loser. And then Jesus comes along and he turns things upside down. And he says, you know what? You want to find your life? You need to lose it first. You need to surrender your heart, your dreams. You need to surrender everything to the will of your Father in heaven. And yet we know this. There are some significant barriers to really surrendering to God. I mean, we'll give God some. We may give God most, but you know that song, I Surrender All? I'm not ready to go there yet. And here's one of the biggest reasons. It's fear. I mean, what if I really did that? If I said, God, here's my, here's my job, here's my family, here's my finances, here's my life. We're sometimes afraid, you know, if I did that, God might mess it up. Or how about this? There's pride. I don't want to surrender my life to anybody. I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. And that attitude gets to the heart of what it means to surrender. Because I think there's one word that describes the biblical concept of surrender. Do you know what that word is? Whatever. God, whatever you say is what I'm going to do. God, wherever you lead is where I'm going to go. We sang it just a few minutes ago. That's a song of surrender. Giving your life to God. And listen, this is not a one-time choice. You know, I signed up to follow Jesus in 1995. You sign up to follow Jesus every day of your life. That is a continual choice of surrendering your heart, your schedule, your mind to God. But I'll tell you what, it's the best way to live. It is the only way to experience the joy and the freedom and the peace and the purpose that God has for each one of us. And church, realize this. You're going to surrender to something. Everybody does. You can surrender to pride. You can surrender to popularity. You can surrender to sexual temptation. You can, you can surrender to bitterness and anger and resentment over the things that have happened to you in the past. Or you can do this. You can surrender to, to fear and anxiety about what might happen to you in the future. Or you can make this choice. You can surrender to Jesus Christ and his incredible love for you. I want to close this morning with a story behind a song. And I'd like to ask the worship team to come up to the stage because we're going to sing this together in just a moment. It's a song that I think many of you know. It's a very moving story. And the person who wrote the words to this song, his name is Joe. And Joe was 25 years old. He fell in love, he was engaged to be married, and the day before the wedding, his fiancée drowned. She died tragically. And he was heartbroken, and so he sailed from his home in Ireland to start a new life in Canada. Well, once he arrived in Canada, he started working there as a teacher, and he fell in love again and was engaged to be married to a young woman. Her name was Eliza. But once again, his hopes and dreams were shattered because she got ill and died before they could get married. 
Shortly after that, Joe received word that his mother was ill in Ireland and he couldn't go there and visit her, so he wrote her a letter to try to comfort her and he included one of the poems that he had written for her. Well, many years later, Joe himself got sick and a friend was sitting with him and, and looking through the poems that he had written over the years and he found the very same poem that he had given to his mother 30 years before. That poem was later set to music by composer Charles Converse who used the words that Joe had written and the title to pin the hymn that is familiar to many people. What a friend we have in Jesus. How many of you know that song? Those words are incredibly powerful because they come from a man whose heart was broken. After Joe Scriven's death in 1896, the citizens of Port Hope in Ontario, Canada erected a monument to his life. The sad and seemingly obscure life of one man who loved Jesus has brought comfort and strength to countless people through the words of this now famous hymn. A hymn that reminds us that no matter what is happening in your life or mine, we can pray and discover what a friend we have in Jesus. Church, let's stand and sing this together.